So for the first three weeks of May, we are looking specifically at this idea of blessing, the declaration of well-being by God on His people. Now this week, we're going to look at, a, at, at, a, at the concept of blessing through 1 Peter, chapter, the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5, and specifically the, uh, the blessing or what's sometimes used or adapted into a benediction comes in, in chapter 5, verses uh, 10 to 11, which is a little bit interesting because it, it says this, and I'm going to read the whole passage in a second with a running start, but the actual blessing part, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you into his eternal... In other words... The, 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 re- the restoration, the confirmation, the strengthening, the establishing, the blessing seems to come on the other side of and through struggling and suffering. You go back to verse 14 of chapter 4. You are insulted for the name of Christ. You are blessed. There's this concept of blessing that comes in the midst of suffering, which is a little bit interesting. So I invite you to open up your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter Um, I'm not going to just read verses 10 and 11 of chapter 5 because there's a context that's essential. Uh, We're going to start at chapter 4, verse 12 for a little context, and then we're going to read all the way through chapter 5, verse 11. Now, if you're able, let me invite you to stand as I read this. This is God's Word, and when I'm finished, I'm going to make the declaration that this is God's Word and invite you to respond by saying, thanks be to God. Uh, So, 1 Peter, chapter 4, starting at verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Now chapter one, uh, chapter 5, verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you into his eternal glory in Christ will establish, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. 
Now, in, in almost any list of common questions uh, about Christianity, one that is always near the top is, why does God allow evil and suffering? Right? If He's supposed to be good, and He's supposed to be so powerful, what's His purpose in doing that? That's a common question, and it's not so hard to see sometimes where that question comes from. Just look around the world. Look around the world at places like the Ketura Dump in the slums along the Paraguay River in South America and Paraguay. It's a huge landfill uh, that uh, Paraguay uses to send its trash, and it's where about 2,500 families live. There's a town there, literally built on the dump in the extreme conditions of poverty. They live there because they have no other place to go, and because the only way that they can survive is off the trash of others in the most unsanitary conditions that you can probably imagine. About 1,500 tons of new trash arrive every single day. That's about 100 trucks arriving every day. And it's often the children of the community, the kids, who are the ones who are responsible for collecting, sifting through, and then reselling the garbage to make any kind of money that they can have. The kids. Why? You ever get that question? Ever ask that question yourself? This is, not an, this is not an abstract question. Anytime we talk about suffering, it is easy in a sense, and I start with the example on purpose, but it is easy in a sense to kind of just push it to another continent, push it to another place, but this is not an abstract question. We'll talk theologically about suffering this morning, but this is not something that is ever very far from us. A couple of weeks ago, I get a text that tells me that a, a longtime husband of someone in this congregation has died. Yesterday morning, I get a text from someone in this congregation telling me that the day before Mother's Day, his mother has died. This past week, as I coached Little League for my own 10-year-old's son, I read about a child in Long Beach, New York, on Long Island, 10 years old, who after getting his first hit of the Little League season, collapses on first base of an epileptic seizure and dies. This is not an abstract question. This is real, and it's, a law, it's around all of us. And often, we look at questions like this, and we look at the, think of the question why, and we say, with, with all honesty, why do these things happen? Why? I don't know. Specifically, that's oftentimes the answer that we come to. We do know some things, We do know that God sees our suffering, that He knows it, that He's aware of it. It's not a secret. We also know that God, in a very real sense, shares our suffering and has shared through the the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Only in Christianity do we have a God who cares so much about suffering that He was willing to experience it Himself in order to end it forever. And because of that, we do know that ultimately suffering will be defeated, that it will end. That is the hope of the resurrection that guarantees the ultimate end of death and suffering for all those who follow Him. We know those things. And while all of those things can be very comforting, (laughs) what none of that really addresses the question that is at hand in 1 Peter chapter 5. Because if all of that is true, if God knows about our suffering, if He has shared in our suffering, if He intends one day to bring an end to our suffering, then why does He not just do it now? Why does He allow us, like it says 
in the benediction in chapter 5, verse 10. Why does he allow us to suffer for even a little while? And even more, why in allowing it does he seem to imply that we're better for it? That we're blessed, not just in spite of our suffering, but somehow because of it, through it. Now, you're already saying, I don't like this sermon. I'm not sure I like it yet either. But this is the big idea. The blessing of God, the declaration of His eternal well-being comes to us at times, not just in spite of our pain and suffering, but often and very intentionally on God's part through it. And what I want us to do this morning is to look at some of the major causes of this. Because if we're to understand this idea of blessing and we are to relate it to suffering, then we need to think of the various causes that suffering has. Persecution, which is what is mostly in view here in chapter 5. A broken world, the general effects of sin upon all of us, and our own personal sin. Each of those things are the causes of pain and suffering in this world, and I want to look at each of them. Let's start with persecution. This is, in a sense, the easiest to, to deal with. This is suffering that is done to us by another party, specifically because we identify ourselves with Jesus. That, like I said, is what's most clearly in view here in 1 Peter. Look at chapter 4, verse 16. If anyone suffers as a Christian... Now, this isn't just a hypothetical if, this is, a, this is an actual if, this is what was happening, right? At this point, being a Christian might not yet have been formally against the law in the Roman Empire, uh, but in many cases it was practically against the law, and ultimately it would be formally against the law, where identification with Jesus as Lord became the chargeable offense in the Roman Empire, because the authorities would begin to, we would begin to ask you, who your ultimate allegiance was. To, to, whom, to whom do you, do you, do you vow an ultimate allegiance? Is it Jesus or is it Caesar? You need to pick. Now, this is not just a first century question, Caesar or Jesus. This is the question on which the essence of Christianity lies for all of us. Who will be your Lord? With whom will you stay? Upon whom will you cast your allegiance? Who will sit on the throne of your life. And what Peter says is, look, when you choose Jesus, don't be surprised when other people hate you for it. Beloved, he says, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes to test you as if something strange were happening to you. It's as if this is just like tailor-made for our world today, right? We've been trained in America to think that suffering and pain is the evidence of something going wrong. Someone needs to be sued because some injustice has been done. Right? And there is injustice, but we kind of think that, that it's always an evidence of us doing something wrong, being off track, being punished maybe, as if, as if we have the right, if we follow all the rules, do all the right things, to a no pain, no suffering existence. And that attitude isn't at all probably unlike the people that, that, that Peter was writing to. It's generally assumed that he was writing to Gentile Christians throughout the, the Roman Empire, and while the Jews may have been somewhat familiar with persecution and minority status, a lot of these Gentile converts probably would not have been. And them, to them, Peter is saying, don't be surprised. This shouldn't shock you. And it shouldn't shock us. Think about it. First of all, we can't conclude that suffering is directly related with doing something wrong because Jesus was perfect. He never did anything wrong. 
Right? Never said something the wrong way. Never, nothing ever came out of his mouth where it was like, eh, I probably should have phrased that differently. That never happened for Jesus. He was always winsome. He was always correct. He was always perfect. And yet, he suffered infinitely. Now, secondly, think about this for a second. If the founding leader of your faith, the head of the church, the second person of the Trinity, God himself, Jesus, was, if he himself was misunderstood, plotted against, betrayed, denied, beaten, executed, if he was all of those things, then what makes us think that the world is going to react any differently to us when we identify ourselves with him? Right? It's pretty arrogant to assume that, isn't it, actually? To assume that we have a right for, uh, for it to go differently for us than it did for the Son of God Himself. First John chapter 3, John writes, Do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. All right, so we should expect it. But, of course, what Peter is saying is not only should you expect it to happen, but that we should rejoice about it. That's what it says, verse 13 of chapter 4. End of verse 16, glorify God for it. Really? What gives him the right to say that? Well, Peter had personal experience with this. Acts chapter 5, Peter and, and some of the other apostles are dragged in front of the religious leaders. They're, um, they're, they're questioned, they're flogged, and then they're commanded to stop speaking in the name of Jesus, which they don't do, of course. But in verse 41, it says that they left rejoicing, verse 41 of, of, of Acts chapter 5, they left having just had that experience of being flogged. They rejoiced, they left rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. And Peter's saying that it's a blessing to suffer for Jesus, that the people he's writing to should rejoice about it. Why? Well, go back to verse 13. Because when we suffer persecution, he says, we share Christ's sufferings. Now, in what sense is that true? Well, not in the sense that our suffering adds anything to the atoning work of of Jesus Christ, right? Only He can pay for our sins, and so our suffering doesn't contribute to that in, in any way. But as we suffer for being associated with Jesus, we are reminded that our identity, has, that his, his identity has become ours, and that our identity is in Him, that we're united with Him in His sufferings and in His death, and then ultimately, because of that, united with Him in His resurrection, right? That's what Paul actually is talking about in Philippians 4 when he says that he longs to know Christ and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, right? This deep appreciation and communion with the suffering Savior. Now, an example from missionary history, John Patton, 19th century missionary to the people of the New Hebrides Islands in the South Pacific, right? Frequently encountered hostility while he was there because he identified himself with Jesus. In his autobiography, Patton describes one incident when hundreds of angry islanders were chasing him, hunting him, seeking to kill him, and he takes refuge in a tree. He hides in a tree, and he stays there all night long. And this is what he wrote in his journal years later. He said, never in all my sorrows did my Lord draw nearer to me and speak more soothingly in my soul than when the moonlight flickered among those chestnut leaves and the night air played on my throbbing brow as I told all my heart to Jesus. Alone, he writes, yet not alone. If it be to glorify my God, I will not grudge to spend many nights alone in such a tree, to feel again my Savior's spiritual presence, to enjoy his consoling fellowship." See what Patton's saying? He's saying that he experienced a level of safety and a level of security in his ultimate home 
that exceeded far, far exceeded anything that he had ever known before. Because in the moment of his greatest danger, he experienced the presence and the fellowship of Jesus that he would, had not and would not have been able to experience otherwise. Blessed, Jesus said, are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. All right, now, even if you're tracking so far, you kind of say, okay, I don't like that that's the way that it is, but I get that the way that that's the way that it is. And I guess the whole blessing for being persecuted thing, that kind of makes sense. There's something noble about that, suffering for Jesus, right? A martyr for the cause. But Peter actually seems to be limiting his discussion to that. Shouldn't we just stop there? Why? Is there, but there's other kinds of suffering. Is there blessing in that? Well, you're right. The, the context here for 1 first, first Peter 4, 1 Peter 5 is primarily about persecution, but there's other places in the Bible that don't let us off the hook that easily. Consider, for example, James chapter 1, right? Turn there if you want, James chapter 1, and look at verse 2. That's where Peter, or where James writes, it's right before 1 Peter, it's where James writes, chapter 1, verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, that opens it up a little bit. I'm not simply to rejoice in suffering when it comes from persecution, but in a sense, when it comes from all different kinds of stuff. So let's look at that next. Let's think about that next. Where's the blessing in the pain and the suffering that comes from the fact that we live in a broken world? Like kids growing up in the filth of a landfill in Paraguay. Like homes swept away by a hurricane. Like a 10-year-old little leaguer who dies. This is where the blessing gets a little bit harder to to see where God doesn't give us all the answers and simply often calls us to, to trust Him with things that we don't know. But for all that we won't be able to figure out, I do think that it's still possible to see the blessing through this kind of suffering at least at some level because it is, this suffering, a very clear reminder to us all that the world is not right. And it demonstrates to us the depth to which our rebellion against God has messed up the world in which we live. In other words, the blessing of experiencing the brokenness of the world is that it forces us to look and to search for a hope that is not in this world. If there is no hope to be found in this world, it forces us to look for that hope where it actually is. Suffering forces us and reminds us that we have no other place to turn. Science and technology, medicine and self-help, they cannot liberate you. Our only hope is in the liberator, Jesus Christ. The one who promised that in this world you will have trouble, but to take heart, he said, because I've overcome the world. And when we do that, we can say, like Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us a glory that far outweighs them all, he says. And see, that's when the world begins to watch. That's when the world begins to, to notice. That's when the world begins to wonder about the hope that you seem to have in the midst of the general suffering of this world. When you suffer, not simply because of persecution, but when the world watches and sees that you suffer in the same ways often that they do. You experience disease like they do. You experience grief like they do. You experience disappointments on your job like they do. 
that's when the world begins to notice. That's when the world begins to see, and that's when it becomes an opportunity for us to display God's glory as being supremely worthy, far greater than anything we may lose or lack in this world. In in 2006, John Piper, a pastor, retired pastor from Minneapolis now, was diagnosed with prostate cancer. And on the eve of his cancer surgery, he wrote a, a brief article titled, Don't Waste Your Cancer. And he listed, pretty bold title, right? He listed in there, it's a letter he said to himself as much as to anyone else, and he listed 10 ways in which he was worried that his suffering might be wasted. And number 10 on the list was, he says, you will waste your cancer if you fail to use it as a means of witness to the truth and glory of Christ. This is what he meant. This is what he says. He says, Christians are never anywhere by divine accident. There are reasons for why we wind up where we do. Consider, he writes, consider what Jesus said about painful, unplanned circumstances in Luke 21. They will lay their hands on you and persecute you. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. That's what Jesus said. Piper continues, so it is with cancer. This will be an opportunity to bear witness. Christ is infinitely worthy. Here is a golden opportunity to show that he is worth more than life. Don't waste it. Now, like you, there's probably, uh, there's, there's probably a large part of me that cringes when you talk about stuff like that, when you actually ask God, in a sense, to do what is ever necessary for you to be able to witness to the all-surpassing glory of Christ. But what if, in fact, suffering would be what is necessary to strip away all of my self-dependence and to know Christ is infinitely worthy? What would I give to get that kind of unassailable confidence and hope? What if there was no other way? Would I want it? What if suffering is the path that God has chosen for me or for someone else to draw someone, maybe even a loved one, maybe even your children, to draw them into an eternal joy of God-dependence rather than an eternal hell of self-dependence? What if that was the way? Wouldn't I want that joy even if there was no other way. Samuel Rutherford said that in the cellars of affliction is where the great king keeps his wine. Charles Spurgeon said, they who dive in the sea of affliction bring up rare pearls. Now, briefly, one final category of suffering. What if your suffering that you're experiencing is actually something that you've done? because of something you've done, something that you've brought upon yourself. The Bible does not hide in any way the result of sin. Sin is, it's kind of the definition, wrong. And rebellion against God's design, rebellion against God's law has predictable and understandable consequences. You can look at the Bible and you can see examples all the way through. King David, Jonah, people who rebelled against what God had told them to do. And they experienced the consequences, and oftentimes they were significant. But sometimes, for many of us, in some ways all of us, we don't have to look at the example of someone else. We can just look at our own lives. And some of you, in a very real way, perhaps in a very acute way even today, know that the suffering that you are experiencing is a result of choices that you have made, things for which you are responsible, whether you've had other people point that out to you, or you just know it yourself. You've messed up, perhaps a little bit, perhaps royally, and now 
you're lying in a bed that you've made, and you're wondering, in all of this talk about suffering, is there room for blessing for me? The question might have even been on your mind when you heard what we read in 1 Peter 4 earlier. Remember what it said, verse 15, where it said, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Now, does that mean that in those kinds of suffering, there's no possibility of blessing? No, it doesn't mean that. Peter's making a contrast here, a very real important contrast that you shouldn't, you shouldn't invite that kind of suffering upon you. He's telling you, don't do this, right? Don't, don't, suffer, for, don't suffer for sin, right? But he's also, he's also not wanting us to twist that. Because remember, Peter, of all people, would have been someone in denying the Lord Jesus on the night that Jesus was betrayed. Peter was someone who would have deserved the consequences of his sin. Now, Peter understands grace. Don't ever twist a statement like that in that way. Don't let that ever tell you that the blessing of God is for those who never fail. Uh, Matt Chandler, who's a pastor in Texas, tells the story of when he was a freshman in college, and he and his friends had gotten to know a a single mom, a young 26-year-old woman who was struggling under the weight of decisions that she had made. She had had a daughter out of wedlock. She was struggling to raise that daughter on her own. She was currently involved at that particular time in an affair with a married man, all kinds of stuff. And so Matt and his friends started to get to know her, started to tell her about grace, about forgiveness. They would go over, they would help her, they would babysit her daughter so that she could study or so that she could go to work. And one night they invited her to attend with them a Christian concert, a concert where a Christian band was playing and she agreed to come. And she was there and between sets of the, of the concert, a speaker got up. This frequently happens at Christian concerts, particularly when there's lots of young people, you get a speaker to come up and and share something about the gospel, challenge them in some kind of way. And the speaker got up and he said, tonight I'm going to talk to you about sexuality. He's talking to a bunch of teenagers, a bunch of college students. And Matt, sitting with this woman, got a little squirmy. He wasn't quite sure what to expect. And what the speaker did was take out a beautiful red rose. Some of you moms have gotten a rose for Mother's Day. And a beautiful, perfect red rose. And he said, look at this rose. It's perfect. No one's hardly ever touched it. Undefiled. I'm going to pass this rose around the room, and I want all of you to hold it. I want all of you to smell it. I want everyone to, everyone to see and experience the beauty of this rose. And he did that. And as he did that, as the rose was being passed, he proceeded to explain to them in, conso- in, in, in significant uh, detail, the consequences, the real consequences, the uh, physical consequences, the emotional consequences, the spiritual consequences, the medical consequences of sexuality outside of God's design. And understand me clearly, those are all real. Those are right to note and to understand, and it is not wrong to warn people about them. But for his big final finale, he failed. The rose made, that way, made its way back to the, to the stage, and like he had kind of hoped, what was brought to him was this mangled rose that had been passed around the entire auditorium. And for his big climax and conclusion, he holds it up and he says, see this? Do you see what's happened because everyone has shared the beauty? 
Who would want something like this? And Matt is sitting next to a 26-year-old broken woman. And he said, it took everything in my being not to stand up and scream, Jesus wants the rose. Because that is the gospel. Jesus is not soft on sin. The entirety of the gospel message tells us that Jesus did not die, though, for the worthy. He died for the unworthy. Not for those who clean themselves up, but for those He blesses and blesses by grace alone. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Or on the cross, he shows us God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now let me summarize quickly. The blessing of God, the declaration of our eternal well-being comes to us not just in spite of our pain and suffering, but very intentionally often through it, whatever its source. And what are the implications of that? What should we take away from this? Well, what have we said? Well, we've said first, we should expect suffering. We worship a Savior who suffered. We have no right to demand that it go any differently for us. This world is a broken place. And God, in His wisdom, has chosen to allow us for a time to experience the consequences of that brokenness for a little while longer. Literally telling us that while we are in this world, as long as we're in this world, we will have trouble. That's the first thing to remember. Expect it. Second thing is that we should, be, we should be honest about it. That means that we recognize all of the struggle that come with these different things. Right? See, saying that, saying that God blesses us in our suffering does not mean that we walk around pretending that suffering itself is somehow inherently good. We've talked about this. You've met people like this, right? They just walk around and they kind of throw it off in a sing-songy voice. I'm blessed. I'm blessed. And you know that when they say that, they're, they're, not, they're masking the hurt. And so to be clear, that's not what we're advocating here. Masking the hurt. Because neither is that particularly honest nor particularly helpful. If you're suffering, if you're hurting, if you're struggling, say so. Because in all likelihood, others are too. Be honest about it. Finally, remember that the grace of God which redeems, redeems those who are broken. Jesus embraces the dirty sinner, makes him clean, transforms him into a saint. That's what he does. And one day he will take this world and he will restore it to a beauty, a beauty for which it was intended. But in the meantime, we are blessed to enter into the suffering of this world and point people to that future hope of redemption. A few years ago in the Keturah slum in Paraguay, there was a guy named Fabio Chavez who tried to do something something like that. He became the conductor of what was known as the landfill harmonic. He took these largely illiterate kids in Keturah who rummaged through the trash and he taught them how to turn the refuse of that dump into violins and cellos. And then he taught them how to play them. And the result is something of absolute beauty, a beauty that you would argue would not be apparent if you heard the music played in the finest concert halls of Vienna. That's the story of the Bible. God restores what is broken. 
He brings a greater beauty out of what has been trashed. He brings hope out of despair, and He brings blessing through suffering. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the hope that we have in You in a broken world. Thank You for the gospel which saves and redeems us from our sin. Thank You for the gospel that we can use to point others to that same hope as well. And Lord, I pray for everyone here this morning, all of us, myself included, that we would see suffering as simultaneously the enemy, something that is to be fought, something that is wrong, and yet at the same time something that is filtered through your loving hand, that there is nothing that happens to us that you are unaware of, that you have not in the person of Jesus Christ suffered on our behalf for, and something that cannot be redeemed through your sovereign work. We pray for comfort for those who struggle. We pray for encouragement. We pray for those who experience great joy to use this opportunity to strengthen themselves and strengthen others. And we pray for you to be glorified in all of it. In Jesus' name, amen.